Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Clearly there's challenges on the horizon or already with us at the moment in terms of resistance. The global spread of antimicrobial resistance is with us and it is inexorable. It is considered that within 30 years, the O'Neill report stated, and I think it's probably right, it might be less, that more people will be killed by antimicrobial resistance and its effects than will be killed by cancer. And in terms of hematology, as I said, if my antibiotics don't work, your patients die full stop. And that's been seen in Rome. There's a very big hematological malignancy unit there. And they had something called a KPC Klebsiella, which is a form of really unpleasant form of antimicrobial resistance, hit their unit about 10 years ago. This was a bone marrow transplant unit. And their transplant-related mortality was around 10%. So it was very reasonable for the amount of sickness they saw. So one in 10 people died. When this bug came along, together with several other resistant bugs, that mortality jumped to 70%. And that's an eye-watering figure. So 7 out of 10 patients died when 1 out of 10 should have died because of their pre-existing carriage of these highly antibiotic-resistant organisms. And just so we're clear, it's a one-way traffic in that if any of us who don't carry these organisms go to India, for example, and you spend two weeks in India and you go to a five-star hotel and you don't eat, you know, the raw salads or the ice cream, you stand a 35% chance of picking up one of these multi-drug resistant organisms and it will live in your gut but you'll be fine because you're immune okay but if you look one year later you've still got a 50 percent chance it's still there and you can't get rid of it and that is because in india as an example there's a huge issue with public health and sanitation and on the other hand they are also very fast and loose with antibiotics but i shouldn't be really slating india off as the only country where this happens. This is essentially just about global now. And because of global travel, it's a global problem. So we are seeing an increase in antimicrobial resistance in this country, and it's accelerating all the time. And we are seeing every week in this unit some challenges in maybe about 10 or 15% of your patients where we need to alter our antibiotics because if we didn't, then those patients, because we're forewarned and forearmed, we look for these bugs first. And if we find them, we know what to give or what not to give. Um, But I come back to this figure, 98% mortality in neutropenic sepsis with no antibiotics. So you can see where this could go. How does a certain area of the world or the country have resistance to certain bugs and others don't? Well, we've got a lot of examples there. So a long time ago... uh, there was erythromycin resistance in pneumococci in one of the Scandinavian countries, and I think it might have been Norway. And their rates had gone from 2% to something like 18%. So that country banned that class of antibiotics for a year, and the problem disappeared. So it's a combination of failed infection control, failed public health, and very, very, very abusive use of these precious life-saving drugs. And that's what you need. That's the combination. So there's, there are some things that happen outside of the hospital and the ward that kind of pre... Absolutely. That, 
you know, we may or may not be able to influence. What are, what are the kind of the practical applications of dealing with increasing okay. resistance? So if you look within at what, a unit? okay, so what Rome did, and in fact, they it brought the, their transplant program to its knees, and they nearly halted it completely, because to consent a patient for, let us say, a transplant where they've got a ninety percent chance of surviving. But if you know they've got this bug, they've got a 30% chance of surviving is a really tough thing to have to do. So they really, really got on the case. They got pretty draconian with antibiotic use, which for Italy was a big step because they are traditionally huge antibiotic abusers. And they put in really tough infection control measures. And their latest figures now show that their transplant-related mortality is back down, not to where it was, but to around 20%. These bugs can get around a ward. Wards have ecologies, and these bacterial ecologies, which is on surfaces, you know, in showers, in uh, water dispensers, on pens, on doctors' ties, on people's hands, in rooms, is entirely driven by the amount of antibiotic in that unit as a whole. So you can think of your ward, if you want, as a, a community of both doctors and nurses and cleaners and uh, you know, physios and OTs and psychologists and patients. And this is a closed community, essentially. And the more antibiotic within that community per week or per day or per year, the more those bugs will be resistant. So it paints a pretty tough picture but the Italians offer some hope in that, you know, they got tough, equally tough, and they've brought their needless mortality rates down hugely. And is that from not transplanting people who have resistant bacteria already present? Well, or, or it, is it just... No, 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 no. Well, they did several things. I think they certainly, because of the increased risk, declined to transplant people who had comorbidities because they knew they wouldn't make... Who were, colonized because they had comorbidities, but more to the point, they prevented those people with those highly resistant bugs who they would transplant because they were teenagers, for example, from transmitting their organisms to the other patients. And I suspect that it's 50-50. You've got to keep your antibiotics really under control, and you've got to have like tip-top, tip-top infection control. And you've got to look at the environment. And we know, for example, that Pseudomonas, which lives everywhere, lives in, you know, in your sinks, in your, in your kitchen, in your loo water, in, in ponds, it lives in anything watery, essentially, can be a particularly nasty organism for your patients. And we know that this hospital, just like every other hospital, has Pseudomonas within it in certain watery places. And that's the kind of thing that we really need to jump on. And the more I see this, the more I think that we're back to the pre-antibiotic days in that, you know, we must not and cannot and should not rely on antibiotics to rescue the day because they don't and they're increasingly failing. We need to do all the other stuff. That's infection control, watching the quality of the water, watching the quality of the air. That's as important, if not more so. As a microbiologist, I guess must be fairly unique in that you have to be thinking about the patient in front of you, but then also the broader population. You've got to be thinking about both things at once, which must be 
Well, it's that's, tricky when a patient is yeah. just saying, "Well, why don't you give me more antibiotics? Different antibiotics. Try every single one." And you, you obviously have to yeah, weigh that uh, up. Uh, yeah. Well, I tell you, Gavin, that is exactly the correct conclusion. Every time I see a patient who's in trouble, I have to think about them, but I also have to think about the ward's ecology because you you have to preserve both. You're sailing between Scylla and Charybdis, aren't you? Because you have to preserve the life of one patient in a way that is the least ecologically damaging. And I think I am known probably for my fairly robust antimicrobial stewardship. UCLH has the lowest antibiotic consumption rate of any London teaching hospital. For some bacteria, it's got the lowest rates of bacterial resistance as well. And I suspect that is because I and my colleagues really do try to hold the line. But I, I am constantly amazed at the number of doctors, probably more so than nurses, actually, who think that if a neutropenic patient on antibiotics is still feverish, then it's because the antibiotic is failing. I'll say two things to that. One is, if they're neutropenic and they're still alive, then the antibiotic is not failing, because they'll die otherwise. And the other one, that I try and teach the junior doctors is that I couldn't care less about fever. I've got one outcome in mind for all of your patients, all of our patients, and that is that they should walk out of hospital one day alive, full stop. Any more than that is a bonus. Antibiotics are not paracetamol. They do not bring people's temperatures down. They stop you from dying by protecting the bloodstream from gram-negative rods, and that's my job. But we now have organisms that essentially are resistant to all penicillins and all cephalosporins, and some are resistant to all aminoglycosides, such as gentamicin, and some are now resistant even to colistin. And these are different mechanisms, but it's the same principle. I'll tell you why this happened. If I took one E. coli bacterium on a Thursday evening in my lab and I gave it unlimited food and water and air and whatever it needed to grow and divide and I went off for a long weekend okay and I came back on Tuesday morning how much do you think the progeny of that one E. coli would weigh give it a guess <laughs> so you start with one yeah and that's Sorry. a millionth Sorry. of a gram yeah right okay and it's dividing. And, and constantly it's got a, rapidly dividing yeah, 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 yeah. the whole weekend yeah. long so yeah. a couple of kilograms Try a bit higher. Bit Ten? A bit more. Fifteen? A bit more. Thirty? Oh, come on. Wrong. Be bold. <laughs> Seventy? Uh, be bolder. So, so weighing more than me? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say exactly <laughs> well, what I weigh, but, you know. <laughs> that's a mere 41 uh, kilograms. Uh, yes. Uh, that, go. 200? No, no, no. I'll put you out of your misery. That one organism will have divided and its mass will be in excess of the mass of the known universe. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you? No. No. It's true. It's that true. is scary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So scary. you can see when they divide that quick and there's so many of them, we have trillions and trillions of these things inside us, you see. All you need is for one of them to be slightly less sensitive to whatever antibiotic it is. 
or genetically through some mutation not be susceptible to that antibody. If you keep piling the antibiotic in, it'll replace all the other guys. You see, we, if you think about it, you know, you're going to reproduce every 25 years. These things reproduce every 13 minutes. <laughs> so you're, it's going to take you and your genes a bit longer to catch up with stuff yeah. than it is for them. So they're in that, there's your answer. And they're able wow. to spread resistance to other yeah. types of bacteria. And there are two types of resistance, and this is where it gets even nastier, in that obviously the sons, well, the, the daughters and daughters, except they're neither sons nor daughters, but the progeny of bacteria will carry the genes of their ancestors. But it gets even more interesting in that we now know that there are several types of mobile genetic elements, which is basically viruses for bacteria. They're called plasmids. They're different sorts, but, you know, transposons. But they're, they're bacterial viruses that do not kill the bacteria, but carry within them antibiotic-resistant sequences. And they really get around. And Manchester, for example, suddenly developed, well, not suddenly, over two years, developed this huge problem with meropenem resistance. Enormous. And it all kicked off on one ward, and there was one marrow-resistant bug, and everybody said, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then on another ward, there was marrow-resistant bug, but it wasn't the same one. It's a completely different bug. They said, oh, well, that's interesting. It's not an outbreak, clearly, because it's not the same bug. And then you got a third and a fourth and a fifth, oh. and they said, well, hang on a minute, what's going on? And then they realized that the resistance was getting around on the virus. And the virus was infecting different, different types, types of bacteria. Yeah. Wow. Isn't nature wonderful? I mean, the fact that bacteria can get viruses is pretty <laughs> shocking, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. You, bacteria you can get these viruses, of course, called uh, a phage. And phages are lethal for bacteria. The trouble is the bacteria become resistant to phage very, very quickly. So these things are called plasmids. And they are far more difficult to control with infection control. They really get around. And they're responsible for the so-called big four resistance types that are circulating around the planet right now. Scary, eh? yeah? Yeah, absolutely. it is. So is the way to kind of conceptualize it in the gut, you've got different groups of bacteria creating antibiotics to kind of yes. make their own space, but then other bacteria are then creating antibiotic enzymes, Pure. enzymes that attack yeah. antibiotics. These, these guys for, you know, uh, well, since they came on this planet, have, have been competing with each other. And, of course, we talk about antimicrobial agents and we talk about antibiotics. And antibiotics, for the most part, are defined as molecules that are made by bacteria. You know, I mean, that's Fleming's penicillin was, you know, he didn't make that in a test tube. That came from another living organism that happened to kill off bacteria. So all the main classes of agent, cephalosporins, uh, come from originally were isolated by a, a chap called Giovanni Brozzu, and he discovered something called Cephalosporum acrimonium, and he found it. Uh, I won't let you guess. He found that in a Sicilian sewer, and we've all heard of cefuroxim and cefetazidine. Yeah. So what happened was then that. People got quite clever with the original antibiotic and started messing with its structure to make it work better. So penicillin was the original one, and then somebody built 
amoxicillin, somebody made flucloxacillin, and that's just tweaking the basic antibiotic to like do stuff a bit differently or better. And there are two reasons. One is you can absorb them better, and the other one is that they can be resistant to at least some bacterial enzymes. That's why flucloxacillin still works for Staph aureus, but penicillin doesn't. So it's all clever stuff, and it's all happening in our gut right now, right mm. now. There's a silent war going on in each and every one of us if we have an immune system. You don't hear it, but all your white cells are there right now making sure that some of those bacteria who might want to take a bit of a chance are kept firmly in their place. And that is why we, as human beings, should be very happy about our immunity because you sure as hell know when you lose it and you don't know what you've got till it's gone.